Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today, you'll be hearing from several publicly traded companies that as part of their fiduciary duty to grow their shareholder base, have hired us to expose them to our audience for potential investment consideration. I make no recommendations about whether or not you should consider investing in our client companies. That is entirely your choice. Before making an investment decision, I encourage you to do your own research on each company. Go beyond the interviews themselves. Look at their websites and do the research needed to become educated. All of our current sponsors are featured on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. You can click through their banners or logos to their websites. There are many resources available to become educated. Use them. I also encourage you not to risk your investment dollars if you cannot afford to do so. There is definitely the possibility of gain while investing as well as the possibility for loss. We'll also speak to analysts on this program who will help to educate us and inform us as to what is happening in the financial world markets, etc. None of us are telling you to buy anything. Feel free to contact us via email by writing to Martin Reports at gmail.com. That's martinreports at gmail.com. We welcome our new and recent association with the Voice America Business Channel. Let's begin the program. Join me now for a conversation with Scott Drever, the president of Silvercrest Mines, which trades on the OTCQX as STVZF. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Their flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located northeast of Hermosillo in the prolific state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. The company anticipates that the 2,500 tons per day facility should produce an average of approximately 800,000 ounces of silver and 30,000 ounces of gold per full production year from the open pit heat leach operation. Scott, welcome to the program. Ellis, thanks very much. For those that are either new to the program or not familiar with your company, please give us a brief background on Silvercrest Mines. Very quickly, my colleagues started this company in 2003. We set some very specific goals to go forward on. We wanted to establish a substantial precious metal resource base. We wanted to get the cash flow from production as quickly as we could, and we wanted to look for elephant deposits while we were doing that and probably preserve ourselves reasonably well as a potential takeover target. I think on those four objectives, we've certainly got three of those in place, and it looks like the results coming from La Hoya will probably fill that fourth objective. For the last several years, we've been really, really focused on the production side of things. The Santa Elena project that we picked up in 05, we've taken from dead stop through expiration, pre-feasibility, feasibility, construction, and of course this year declared commercial production earlier in the year. So that's gotten us to a fairly comfortable stage where we reached the production targets that we look for, which we're doing right now about 3,000 ounces of gold per month and about 30,000, 35,000 ounces of silver. So that'll give us a good steady cash flow platform to go forward on. I think our cash flow in the second quarter of this year is plus $3 million, and we're looking for that to increase over the quarters as we go forward. Now, Santa Elena, which is just northeast of Hermosillo in prolific Sonora State, Mexico, is your flagship property, but let's talk about the jewel, if you will. 
La Jolla in Durango, Mexico. What have you discovered there recently? La Jolla is a property a project that we picked up September of last year, I think it was. Similar in circumstances to Santa Elena in that it's been around for a while. A number of people have looked at it, had difficulties dealing with the owners, but we've been able to overcome those things. And we drilled our first phase of holes at La Jolla earlier this year and have just announced on Monday, I think, the results of at least one of the compilations that we've done. Our initial go-around at it looked at the high-grade silver, gold, copper values that we thought we could make a viable deposit out of. But looking at additional information that we acquired from one of the previous operators, we've been able to expand our horizon, if you will, and look at the possibility of a large bulk tonnage type of deposit. The results that we've seen have been really, really encouraging. Some of the holes are running 250 meters thereabouts of 55 to 60 grams of silver equivalent, which for people that, that don't think in grams is pretty close to an ounce and a half of silver. And over those kinds of width, it provides us an opportunity to consider a very large bulk tonnage operation. What sort of news do you think we may be able to expect over the coming 12 months or so? We will have a very steady news flow, I think, coming out of Silvercrest. Probably the next item would be an update on the exploration activities that we are undertaking right now. We've drilled a number of holes, uh, cruised a mile, which we're preparing for feasibility study to part of the expansion plan for Santa Elena. So those results will be available. We'll give people a better idea of the exploration program that we're undertaking at La Jolla. And one of the most significant elements, I think, is the release of a 43-101 with the initial resource estimates at La Jolla. Then through the first part of next year, of course, there will be updates on the activities or the results of all of those programs. We're also going forward with the expansion plan at Santa Elena, which we expect will double the production there over the next three years. We'll be starting construction at some point in time on a 3,500-ton-a-day conventional mill. We're collaring an underground decline in January of next year to take us down to the bottom of the current deposit at Santa Elena and see what kind of reserves and resources we can develop there. So it's going to be a really, really active 12 months for us. It's quite prolific around Durango and Hermosillo. Mineral rich and polymetallic. You're very fortunate that you found the properties that you have. Are you going to be looking for more? Absolutely. As you say, it's a very prolific area. First Majestic Laparia mine is just across the valley from us. The San Martin and Sabinas mines are probably 15 kilometers to the southeast of us. Those mines have been active in the same set of geology and types of mineralization that we have at La Jolla for probably plus or minus 300 years. So we're really in a great area. We've got some historical data that leads us in other directions, and those have identified probably three other targets around the results that we've just announced that we're really excited about. So we will take a look at that whole strip between La Jolla and San Martín and Venus just because of the prolific nature of that mineral zone. Scott, thanks very much for joining me today on the program. Absolutely my pleasure once again, Alice. Thanks very much. I've been speaking with Scott Drever, president of Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX under the symbol STVZF. Find a link to their website on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Contact our sponsor companies directly. They're on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com.
David Morgan is an expert on silver, gold, and precious metals investments. He's a world-renowned lecturer appearing on CNBC and the Fox Business Channel. He's an author having penned Get the Skinny on Silver Investing. And Mr. Morgan is a regular contributor and friend of the Ellis Martin Report. Let's talk about the mental health of the economy. What kind of shape are we in as a country? Well, we're not in good shape. I mean, if you look at it, not from a monetary or a fiat money or a gold standard or any of those things that we've talked about on your show so many times, but you look at it from a physical economy, and what that means is, you know, how much wheat is being grown, how much oil is being produced, how many new jobs are being created, how many new businesses are arising, what new technologies are at the fore. Is it increasing or decreasing? And you would have to admit that it's decreasing. And when the physical economy is contracting, you will have a contraction represented throughout the whole structure, which, of course, is manifest with difficulty getting jobs, increasing unemployment. It may have stabilized here for a while. We have to wait and see. But overall, the mood is down. And the mood is rather depressive. And the reason that depressions are called depression is it's a mental state. It's that people, for by and large, perhaps don't give up, but they are mentally down because they've tried over and over and over to get a job. And you see this all the time on the Internet. I mean, there's these jobs that open up where they need like four or five people, and they've got, you know, 190 applicants that go around the block twice. And that's the state of the economy. Aren't we in a culture of a cult of personality and that we need leadership that's going to get us out of our depression? Consistent leadership? Former Presidents Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton had no problem changing the mood of the country into a place where we were productive. Even if we had a Reagan or a Clinton in office, would that be enough? Well, I'll give you a two-part answer. I agree. Answer in the second part first. With a very strong leader and an overall direction given to the people, it would definitely have an effect that could be manifest in more productivity and maybe growing out of this situation. I think we're too far gone, and I think it's almost a bit delusional at this point to believe that even the strongest leader would be able to do that much. The reason that Clinton and Reagan were able to do what they did was that we hadn't reached the limit of the fiat money creation at the time that they were in office. For example, the Democrats loved to brag about Clinton and what he did and that they had a surplus, but that's really not the total truth. The reason there was a surplus was because he borrowed money out of the Social Security system to balance the budget and put in a bunch of IOUs. So in other words, he took something out of the left pocket, put in the right pocket, said, look, focus on the right pocket. We have a surplus under my administration. But the total truth is he took that money from the quote-unquote Social Security trust fund. So that's part of it. And with Reagan, there was a time with this supply-side economics that was tried and the mood. I mean, Reagan had charisma, and I've seen a lot of presidents in my life at this point, and I don't think there's one that I can name personally, in my opinion, that had anything near the charisma that Reagan had. He'd stand up there, and he just felt better. And that does have some sway with people, and it does motivate them. Really, what we need today is a leader that's willing to tell the people the truth. We've overspent, we've overlent, we've overborrowed. We overpromised, and we cannot make good on all of these promises that we have made to you, our citizens. And here's what we're going to do about it. Now, no one is going to do that in the political realm because it's going to be political suicide. But that's basically what could or would need to happen for this thing to really get some traction because you've got to define the problem. Once the problem is defined, the way you actually get people motivated is you get back to the original principles 
that made things work, which is less government, not more. Less regulation, not more. Now, I'm not anti-regulation in some cases. I think it's necessary. But you can't regulate honesty. I mean, you could put every moral code in the law, and a lot of them are there in some fashion or form, but it doesn't prevent human nature from arising. And you cannot legislate human nature out of the equation. It cannot be done. It never will be done. And that's the problem with any of this regulation. It's like, well, if you regulate more, it won't happen. No, it's going to happen, regardless of how many laws you have on the books. The best way to get out of it is let the free market determine what's fair, what's honest, and what's going to work. And that's what will get the economy moving again. But that means political power, political capital, has to be spent in a negative way. In other words, you've got to have less bureaucrats, less government, and less interference in the people's lives, and that's what needs to be accomplished. But it's happening with or without government. In other words, people are ignoring some of this stuff and going their own way because they're just fed up with what's happened the last several years. As you know, we're a reactionary people. Great things in our country sometimes happen due to necessary innovations based on the needs of a growing population. For us to spiral out of the spiral down, wouldn't we have to see some sort of financial collapse? I think at this point we are seeing it. You know, I laugh. It's not funny laughter, but I chuckle from the aspect that if you look on the Wall Street Journal or Fortune or any of the leading mainstream financial publications, and you just read the words that are on the page, you know, you don't embellish it, you don't prejudice it with your thought or your wish or your want. You just look at what's there. It's obvious it's collapsing. And yet, because we are living it, we're so biased that tomorrow will be as good as today or maybe a little bit better, or that things will will get them out of it, or we've had these before, and all this other prejudice that's in our own heads that we really don't see what's right in front of us. And the fact is we are collapsing. As I said at the beginning of your show, Ellis, real economy expanding or is it contracting? The answer is contracting. And that's the truth. And because of that truth, it's collapsing. That, by definition, means it's at least contracting. And then what's the difference between a collapse and a contraction? Well, we're playing semantics here, but a collapse would be something that probably takes place very rapidly, whereas a contraction can take place over time. So I'd say the economy is contracting, and will it accelerate or not, I think, is debatable. But from my study, I'd say it's actually going to be accelerating. And how do you know that what I'm saying has merit? is look at these Occupy situations. You know, what was only going on in Greece and the Eurozone and then in North Africa is now in the United States. I mean, it's a worldwide thing. These people that are out there protesting are angry, they're upset. And to quote Gerald Salenti, and I think he says it best, when they've lost everything, they have nothing to lose, so they lose it. But they are, they've lost it, they've got nothing to lose, they're out in the street and you're saying, hey, I am really unhappy with you guys, and fix it. And the problem is government really cannot fix it. They have to, again, unregulate or deregulate and let the people work their way out of this. But it's tough in a contracting economy. There's less to go around. There's less physical wealth to go around. There's less jobs to go around. And it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. You opened up a big door with the Occupy Wall Street movement and a real need of the people to better their lives. The feeling of helplessness is rather persuasive. But I can't help but think that this is not some sort of situation that is being controlled and manipulated politically for the benefit of those who either want to keep things the way they are or they want to change them even further in a direction that may not be good for all of us. 
I tend to agree with that. I'm not a big conspiracy person. I certainly think there are some. And what you're outlining, I think, to some degree is true. I think that there are some political forces, if you want to call them that, that are taking advantage of the situation. And I also think there's a whole bunch of them out there that are just doing it because they you know, feel compelled to do it. So I think it's both. I think it's a mix. But certainly, as some of the communists have said in the past, they call these people useful idiots. You know, they get them to buy into an ideology, and they basically use their time and energy to further their own cause, and the people that are furthering the cause don't even realize what the cause is underneath it. In other words, on the surface, oh, I'm angry, I'm upset, you know, I'm going to go out there and let everybody know that, but there's something much deeper underneath it. And this is been shown again and again throughout history. Most people are followers, not leaders. And the only way to get a strong economy, a strong, vibrant relationship with other people and, and with the planet even, you know, in other words, to be good stewards of what you have and develop things in this buzzword now is, you know, sustainable growth and all of this stuff. The only way to do that is, one, set down very simple principles that work everywhere always for everyone and abide by them. And that's basically how this country was founded. And it worked very well. Now, were there problems? You bet there were. Of course there are. There's nothing perfect in the human realm. But it was a far superior method that the people understood that they could actually prosper and they had the American dream that was vibrant and believable in those days. That if you did work hard, you maybe went the extra mile, you invented something purposeful, then you would prosper. But now I think the American dream is more of a fantasy in some areas. I'm certainly not going to, you know, I'm objective enough and I've seen too many in my life and even present day where, you know, the American dream is still alive. But the more regulation and the more problems that are poured on with this debt structure and everything else, it becomes more difficult but uh, it's certainly not eliminated. I can't remember in November in recent years, with the exception of 2008, David, where we weren't in some sort of commodities fall rally. Well, it seems as if we're in it. And I can't help think of how seasonal it is and how staged and how potentially manipulated it is. Well, there are seasonalities. That's pretty provable. I'm kind of going the other way this year. The normal seasonality for the metals is that you get a real downturn in the metals in summertime. August particularly. And this year we didn't have that. So I'm of the belief that one, are we getting a rally? Absolutely, that's a fact. And normally you get a peak in the metals in like the first quarter of the new year. And of the mindset that maybe we're going to see it a bit early, as you just alluded to, and maybe we won't see a new high. There is a lot of more randomness out there than people think. Certainly there are powers that can sway the market. I certainly admit that. I've seen it. I've talked about it. I've written about it. Yet there's still a lot of randomness to any market. There's still these things that happen. In other words, if it was so predictable, you would be able to write a math equation for it, and you'd be able to basically take advantage of the market. And that took place with long-term capital management. I mean, these guys were PhD economists. They wrote a math program, but you cannot predict human behavior. And even though the thing had stellar returns for a number of years, when the Russian bond market blew up, they had no way of predicting how far it would go. basically blew up long-term capital management. In 2009 and 2010, it was fairly reliable at the time that you could make smart investments in gold and silver stocks and experience a fairly good short-term return. And by short-term, I mean within three to six months. We can't necessarily make that claim now, can we? No, that's over. I mean, things have gotten into a new realm. We're getting toward a new paradigm. I think we're getting into the crisis phase where enough of the population is waking up 
and saying, it's not going to get better. We're not going to grow ways out of this. I can't find a job. And those type of ideas. So then they get into this anger mode, which we're seeing, again, globally. And it's a process that humanity has been through before. The problem, the way I see it, is that humanity's never been through it before on this kind of a scale. There's never been 7 billion people on the planet. It's never been as interconnected as it is now. It has never been dependent on one fiat currency to the degree that it is now, obviously the U.S. dollar. The ability to predict how a financial collapse or major contraction, if you want to be polite, affects the globe is really impossible to predict. We have nothing in history to really look at. You can look at the Roman Empire and get a pretty good idea of what a major collapse looks like. But this is real time and now, and it's not going to be uniform across the board. There'll be areas that basically probably don't change hardly at all. And there'll be areas that are basically devastated. And it's very difficult to predict those type of things. But you can predict the overall trend. You can predict, yeah, it's going to contract. You can predict that there's going to be hardship. You can predict a lot of that. But as far as specifics go, what's going to be here first, there, next, and that type of thing, that's almost impossible to predict. Well, there are people that are opportunists in these times. And I mean that in a positive light. There are contrarians. They know this is the time for opportunity. How, through you and your website, The Morgan Report, and silver-investor.com, do we take advantage of the opportunities that must be there? Well, I'm going to address that in a minute, and thanks for giving me that opening. But before we go there, I just had a similar conversation, not nearly as in-depth with my youngest daughter. And I explained to her that during the Great Depression in the 30s, that there were more millionaires made than probably any other time in the United States on a per capita basis. And one of the ones that I know very well is this Jiffy Mix. It still exists. I mean, basically, I think it's cornmeal and uh, baking powder or something. And you have to add the milk and eggs. And, you know, you would think that something that simple would gain traction in the, in the Great Depression, and yet it did. So there's always ingenuity. There's always the human ability to overcome things. And a way to really prosper during the, the coming times is to find a need and fill it. I mean, it's really that simple now to know what a need is or something that you think might be a need are two different things, and that's why the free market exists. But coming back to what I do, I think you can definitely preserve your capital. I think you could probably even grow it even now by getting into the precious metals. I do believe that you should start with physical metal, and then after that's accomplished, that you should move into the uh, top-tier cash-rich unhedged mining companies. And once that's accomplished, then you can go into high-risk reward profiles that we outline in my reports. But even if all of that doesn't resonate with you, you certainly can get on our free list. And I do a weekly economic update, and I usually do a little bit of Q&A. I love to teach, and we get questions from our subscribers, and we usually put one of those in per week. And a lot of other information. We try to provide a free once-a-week letter that's of value to people and we have a pretty good mailing list and we do feature just articles across the board in other words it's not just stuff that i do although certainly highlight a lot of that but it's also people that have been like at the silver summit recently or someone that's put something out for the public that's bears watching such as bart chilton just recently do an interview with the radio host and that type of thing david i've enjoyed this in-depth conversation today as usual your insight is always compelling and worth listening to Thanks for joining me today on the program. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with expert analyst David Morgan of The Morgan Report and silver-investor.com. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website 
ellismartinreport.com. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of a company with significant assets of zirconium, rare earths, and rare metals, as well as gold and copper in New South Wales, Australia. Alkane Resources trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX as ANLKY. That's ANLKY. The Alkane story has been a compelling one, reflecting the success of their Dubbo Zirconia project and the international market for zirconium and rare metal resources. Ian, welcome back to the program. Uh, hi, Alice. Nice to be with you again. Now, you've been on the road a great deal lately. What have you been doing? I've just spent nearly two weeks in Hong Kong. There were actually three conferences there. There was a Daiwa, the big Japanese investment bank, had a conference where I was participating, followed by a mineral sands conference, zirconium titanium, and obviously because of our involvement in the zirconium industry, very important for us. And then followed up with a rare earth conference, which was very good also. Large attendances at both those two conferences. A lot of good information and nowhere near the pessimism about the rare earth prices at the media seems to have jumped on it. The conference was very good in the sense that there was a far more optimism about the industry where it was going to go, but certainly prices are down, but they're still way, way above what they were even eight, nine months ago, and there was a great deal of optimism about where the industry was going to go. Speaking of zirconium and heavy rare earths, while you're on the road, your company released news about an ore reserve upgrade at Dubbo. Basically, uh, what we've done is publish an upgraded reserve statement for the Dubbo Zirconia project. This is a very important step because reserves are a step above resources. Resources just define the material in the ground, whereas reserves mean that there's an economic imprint feasibility done on it. And so that 36 million tonnes that we've identified as open pitable reserves gives us at least a start-up or initial start-up mine life of 36 years. So it's a very important step with the project going forward. What is the potential revenue during that time period for the company? Substantial. Basically the revenues are around about $500 million a year. So if you take five 500 million and multiplied by 36, you get something like $18 billion revenue over that 36-year period. So it's a substantial project and substantial revenue generating capacities. Of course, it's not the actual profit. I mean, the cash flow out of that's about, well, it's $300 million a year cash flow, which then multiplied by 36, you get something like $10 billion a year cash flow over that 36 years. So yeah, it still is a, a very, very substantial return. That makes you a major player in any industry in Australia, correct? It does. Yes, it does. Yeah, certainly a major mining operation. And importantly for us, a very significant player in the zirconium industry and the heavier earth industry, which is you know, really where we've been targeting now for 15 years. When you're talking about that kind of revenue, what will you be doing with the money? It's a, it's, it's, a good, it's a good question, actually. I mean, we genuinely believe we can pay dividends. I mean, that's the board strategy. We've had it now for a number of years. We felt that when this project got up in production, that would be the capability. Again, once we've paid back all capital, facilities, etc., we're in a position to pay dividends, and major shareholders believe in that concept as well. So we genuinely believe we'll be a significant dividend-paying company. Now, you expect to be going into production with gold at the Tommingley Project in 2013. Let's talk about that. There's a process for approvals, an environmental impact statement. There's a process that the state goes through, and one of the final stages is that it goes on what they call public display or public exhibition 
exhibition. So for 28 days, that environmental statement or that environmental report is available to the public. People can look at it, they can comment, they can lodge objections. So it's an important part of the process. And once that 28-day period is up, if there are no substantial objections, the state then usually approves the project to go ahead. If there are significant issues, then we have to come back and address them and make sure that we comply again. And eventually that goes back to the state who then decide, have we complied, have we met all the new conditions. So we remain very confident the project has no other major environmental impacts. Pretty confident we'll get the final go-ahead sometime in the new year. It may be February, March before we get that go-ahead, but at least this is a, another big step forward. Well, you've got a great deal of work to do between Double and Tomley with the jobs you're creating for these two projects and those teams. How are you handling the infrastructure of the company itself? Again, important thing. I mean, historically, we've run two development teams, one for the Gold Project, one for the Zirconia Project, and those two teams are intimately involved with taking it forward. Now, obviously, when you go from conceptual feasibility study through to construction, the whole thing changes. So Alcane, over the next six months, will go through a transition where we'll take on senior employees to take the Tomingley project through development and then into production and then obviously put on all the operating staff when we're ready to go. With Dubbo, we're still a good 12 months away from getting to that point where we can start proceeding. We've got to get the financing in place, the approvals in place, and that should be uh, the target for that's by the end of next year. Then Dubbo will go through that next transition. Fortunately, the area we operate is an area with a substantial existing workforce. I mean, it's a major agriculture cultural region that also has a number of significant operating mines so there is a good workforce that's already available and, and we don't really anticipate having difficulty getting the right people to, to run these projects. Now you mentioned financing. What kind of money do you need to get both these projects going? Are you going to the market for it or do you have other ways of raising the cash? With Tomingley it's about 90 million Australian dollar capital cost. We have a 45 million dollar facility on offer to us from Credit Suisse, the large international bank. The other 45 we'll have to raise and we're looking at the options of doing that and that probably will mean us going to the market at some stage to raise that $45 million. Now, Dubbo said still 12 months out. The total capital for that was about $890 million, but on that $890, there's something like $180 million of that is made up of contingencies and EPCMs, add-on type things. So we think the actual real number will be closer to $750 or $800 for that project going forward. And right now, there are a number of options available to us, and one of them is a small strategic sell-down of part of the project, and we think we can do that with an escalator to NPV value. So the current model has an NPV of $1.2 billion. We think we could sell 10% for maybe $200 or $300 million. Then there's, interestingly, quite a large amount of funding available from government agencies. And these are certainly Japan, Korea, European countries now are really putting up loan facilities to ensure that those countries get access to these strategic metals and applies to both the zirconium and the rare earths. To a lesser extent, niobium, but it's still important. There's substantial funds available from those sources as well and then finally again just normal commercial debt and then equity and we've tried to target ourselves to being fairly minimal impact as far as the equity market is concerned and we're trying to minimize the uh, the impact on the equity side of the business and, and get all the other financing applications or components in first. Rare metal prices are a bit depressed at the moment but over the long run that's certainly most likely not going to be the case. We remain very positive about the business.
business, the whole business, the zirconium business particularly, there will certainly be a flat period now of maybe six months while we get through this latest financial situation. But as we go forward into the second half of 2012 and into 2013, we're very confident that the zirconium price will continue to escalate. The rare earths, it'll go through a transition over the next four or five years when the big producers like Molycorp, Linus come on stream. Some of the bulk volume rare earths like Lanthanum, Cerium, they may well come down further in price, but the key ones, Neodymium and then the heavies, Dysprosium, Terbium, Yttrium, I think those prices will remain strong for a long time, unless there's again a major change in the supply chain over the next 10, even to 20 years. So we remain very positive about this business and where we're going to be situated in it starting 2014. Ian, it's always great to catch up with you. I look forward to continued positive news coming from Dubbo and Tom Lee. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Thank you, Ellis. A pleasure as usual. Once again, I've been speaking with Ian Chalmers, President and Managing Director of Alkane Resources. Alkane trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Dudley Baker is the editor of PreciousMetalsWarrants.com. Mr. Baker has 35 years of accumulated knowledge and experience in trading stocks, options, leaps, futures, options on futures, and warrants. In March 2005, he founded and launched a new investment market data service, Precious Metals Warrants, which provides detail on all mining and energy company warrants trading on the U.S. and Canadian exchanges. As part of his service, he provides insights as to when insiders are buying and selling and issues buy and sell recommendations based on his research. Welcome back to the program. Good to be here, Ella. I'm very excited in that we have several new sponsors on the program, all resource companies, and I think it portends a very nice season coming up for potential investors in the market. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you. Something is starting to feel like, to me, that we've probably got the bottom in place. You know, and our listeners know, that I won't say vacillating back and forth, but the deal is it's been hard to pinpoint gold, silver, resource stocks is the bottom in. we got another big plunge to come. Is it ready to back up the truck and buy? This has been a difficult year, and I'm kind of sensing right now, after yesterday, we had a big plunge here. All the financial markets, gold and silver, on Monday, and then gold was down 40, 50 at one time. I almost think that may have been the dagger that may have put the bottom into place, and I'm starting to feel really good about where we're going from here. Once we're really, really comfortable, I think we've got some good times right in front of us. Obviously, resource companies are going to be looking at sites like yours with the Ellis Martin Report to get out their message, and we as well with our services. I'm excited about where we're going here. A lot of blue sky in front of me. Well, it's been my experience that the resource companies as a group, as a collective, they have a sense of where the market may be going. And when they have a sense that there might be some activity, then we tend to see more sponsorship with regard to our program. It's been an incredible year that way, and the market has been tumultuous, certainly, but it's exciting that there are plenty of potential opportunities out there. So many companies out there, and there's a lot of good ones, a lot of bad ones, a lot of great stories out there that are just not recognized right now in the marketplace. All those owners of those companies, the insiders, they've got to feel good about their own story, but they also kind of have to feel good about the market environment. And you know, we're going to both be in San Francisco here for the Hard Assets Conference this coming weekend. I think we're going to sense a lot of excitement in the room. I think there's incredible turnout of companies. It's going to really be fun to get that sense of what is that level of excitement in the room. Everybody Everybody's looking to get their stories out, and I think 
everything's coming together here real quick. How do you pick a company to get behind with so many of them attempting to get their message into the market right now? We've just got our eyes open from all kind of different directions. Once we hear a name of XYZ Gold, the first thing that Dudley Baker does is I immediately look to see what are the insiders doing. I immediately go and I've got a great institutional service that I go to up to the minute for all of the resource companies and I immediately know what positions all of the insiders have without mentioning names but here's just one thing I like to follow. I know there's one company that will be presenting in San Francisco so I won't mention the name. A widely followed company looking the other day of their four top officers only one has any common shares that they own outright and that's only like 21,000 shares which is nothing. They all have some options but what does that tell you? It tells me they have no skin in the game. This is the CEO. This is the head financial guy. This is everybody. The top VP of exploration nor the exploration manager have one common share nor an option. What is their motivation to make that company fly? I want to feel like management's on board big time. And they've got a big vested interest in this company succeeding. When I found that detail, I said, man, there's no reason for me to touch that. Because I would be taking on a bigger position than any of the officers of that company if I was to step in and, and recommend that stock or buy it myself. I always look at, number one, when I get the name of a company that sounds interesting or, say, another analyst may be talking about or whatever, God, what are the insiders doing? And within five minutes, I've made a decision. I either want a piece of this or it's like there's no way in hell I'm going to touch this baby. I'm one of the few guys I know in the business that actually follows religiously insider transactions. Within our service, Ellis, I follow all the warrants, you know, that are trading U.S. and Canada and the resource companies. And then I've got a whole lot of common stocks in my portfolio. Every one of those stocks I've got plugged into a big portfolio where I monitor all the insider activity. Anything happens with an insider, I get an instant email. So it allows me to stay right up to speed, right up to the minute on what those insiders are doing. Pretty cool. So basically, a subscriber to your service can really count on you to do all the homework involved in vetting many of these companies. Well, that's what I always say that is the normal disclosure that we want everybody to do their own due diligence. You know, don't just take my word for it. But I mean, basically, once you get comfortable with my methodology and what I'm doing, obviously, you're going to feel like you can maybe rely on us a little bit more. Legally, you know, we always want that disclosure to be there so people can do take a look, etc., and not just take our word for it. But we do know a lot of investors out there just tell me what to buy. We've done a pretty good job of this. Again, this has been a real choppy year, as you know, for all of the resource companies. If it's not already passed in the coming days or weeks, it's going to be time to really get excited about where we are and the future gains coming up. So anybody listening now, if they're not on board, not in these markets, I'd love to have all the listeners as subscribers to Precious Metals Warrants. But even if for whatever reason they choose not to, it's just about time to be in the game. So you need to get started and get excited and find out a way to get some good resource companies in your portfolio. Of course, you've got a lot of good sponsors, so this is a cool way to do it right here. Thanks for joining me today on the program. You bet, Alice. Adios. I've been visiting with analyst and newsletter writer Dudley Baker. Dudley's website is preciousmetalswarrants.com. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Lorne Waldman, the corporate secretary for Silvercore Metals Incorporated, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol SVM. Silvercore Metals is engaged in the acquisition, exploration, development, and mining of high-grade silver-related mineral properties in China and Canada. 
Silvercore is the largest primary silver producer in China through the operation of four silver lead zinc mines in the Ying Mining Camp in Henan Province. Lorne, welcome back to the program. Thanks, fellas. Good to be here. I understand you had a significant revenue increase of up to 71%, and additionally, you're offering another 25% increase to your shareholders. Let's talk about that. Sure. You know, first of all, you know, we're really uh, excited to be able to announce a dividend increase. We've increased the dividend by 25%. This is the third time in the course of the last five years that we've increased our dividends. And you know, we think it's really important to uh, reward our shareholders and the loyalty they've shown to us with the payment of dividends. But underlying all dividends, there has to be real earnings. And that's the important thing. And you know, we've had our quarterly analyst conference call where we uh, reviewed our uh, earnings for the last quarter. The earnings were very strong. Our net income was up 49%, and our cash flow from operations was up 140%. So, you know, those are the type of numbers that can allow you to support a growing dividend. Now, you predicted your revenue would grow, but how do you account for it? Well, you know, in this quarter, the revenue growth was partially due to increases in our production. Silver production was up, gold production was up, and if you mash them together on a silver equivalent basis, production was up 12%. Also, we are benefiting from stronger silver prices. Silver prices were up over 108% compared to this time last year. There are many investors who won't touch a company unless they're paying dividends, and you're actually doing it. Well, we are paying a very healthy dividend, and we've been paying dividends for five years, long before it was in vogue for resource companies to start paying dividends. We just think it's an important way to reward your shareholders. Yes, we focus on growth. We've demonstrated an excellent track record in growing our resources and our productions every year since we first began producing in uh, 2006. But that being said, besides growth, we do want to reward shareholders with dividends. What's next for Silvercorp in the coming year? Well, we have a lot of exciting growth opportunities coming up ahead. You know, one of the big projects we're working on, of course, is our new GC development property. We just commenced construction on that. The mine and mill should be completed around the end of June in uh, 2012, and we'll be able to start ramping up production there. You know, in addition to that, you know, we recently acquired the uh, XBG project, which is right near to our Ying mine, so we'll be able to be starting to get some production from there. And we have the new BYP project going. So, you know, we have a number of items in the pipeline which should allow us to continue to grow our production as well as our resources. On the resource side, you know, in China alone, we have 241,000 meter drilling program that's currently ongoing this year. And so we're uh, looking forward to seeing some positive results from that drilling program. What's happening in North America, in Canada specifically? Well, in North America, we have our silver tip project. That's a silver lead zinc project in northern British Columbia. You know, right now our focus there is on applying for a small mine permit, which would allow us to establish a 75,000 ton per year operation. But even before we get that going, we hope to be getting a bulk sample permit, which would allow us to mine at 60,000 tons per year 
and that could start as early as you know within the next mining season, so as, as early as next June. And the nice thing at the Silvertip project is a high-grade project. If you look at the resource, you know you're looking at grades of around 400 grams per ton silver and around 18% lead zinc, but there's even higher grade pockets closer to 700 grams per ton silver and 27% lead zinc. With those type of grades, you can ship it directly from the property to our mills in China and it would still be very profitable. Speaking of profit, what do you intend on doing with your large treasury? You know, we have $176 million in cash and no long-term debt at the end of September. So we're basically using that to finance our existing capital expenditure plans. And so that includes things like building new tunnels at our existing Ying mining camp, also funding the development of the GC project, expanding BYP. In total, we have around 70 million of capital expenditures budgeted for the current fiscal year. In addition to that, a big part of Silvercorp's growth strategy is to grow through acquisitions. And so we're always looking for good, high-grade, underground, precious metal projects that we can bring into production quickly and with relatively limited capital. You've been trading on the New York Stock Exchange for a while, and your share price has been recovering nicely lately. Do you believe there's still room for upside in this tumultuous market? Well, you know, I don't like to comment on the share price. You know, I encourage investors to take a look at Silvercorp. But when you're comparing Silvercorp to our peers, what you need to remember is that Silvercorp is the low-cost producer. And in any commodity business, at the end of the day, you want to be the low-cost producer. And that's one of the key advantages you have when you're investing in a company like Silvercorp. In addition, you know, you're getting a company that has a very entrepreneurial management team and a terrific track record of success and building value for its shareholders. Lauren, once again, I thank you for spending time with me today on the program. I appreciate your being here. Thanks a lot, Alice. Lauren Waldman is the Corporate Secretary of Silvercorp Metals, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol SBM. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. IBC Advanced Alloys Corporation is a worldwide manufacturer and supplier of advanced materials and other intermediate products with a focus on rare metals or beryllium-related alloys, as well as non-ferrous alloys, for a wide range of industrial applications, including nuclear power, oil and gas, defense, electronics, and automotive. IBC has 65 employees and, while headquartered in Vancouver, Canada, has facilities in Pennsylvania, Indiana, Massachusetts, and Missouri. IBC trades on the Canadian Venture Exchange under the symbol IB.V. Join me now for a discussion with IBC President Anthony Dutton. We're at the Hard Assets Conference in beautiful San Francisco, and I'm with Anthony Dutton of IBC Advanced Alloys, trading on the Venture Exchange under the symbol IB and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under the symbol IAALF. And if you've listened to the intro, you've learned a bit about the company. Anthony, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Welcome back to the program, and what have you been doing the last three weeks since we spoke last over the phone? Well, there's been an awful lot going on at IBC, actually, so a lot of your investors, a lot of your audience have probably been watching the uh, the global markets and a little bit of turmoil right now and some uncertainty. 
IBC has been carrying on very, very positively. We published our year-end financial numbers uh, quite recently, which showed a 37% increase in revenues over last year. We have a very, very strong order book. We are, like the rest of the world, very conscious of what's going on around us, but uh, so far our key customers are continuing to uh, place orders, are continuing to grow with us. We've also just about completed our Utah drill program. We have a 35-hole drill program going on there right now. I think that uh, we're actually on a hole 32 this week, so we should be wrapped up in the next five to ten days with that drill program and expect to have results out early in 2012. Now, you're a revenue-generating company. How are you doing that right now? Yeah, that's a very good question, Ellis, especially at a conference like this. When I tell people who come by our booth that we're actually profitable and generating in excess of $20 million a year in revenue, they look at me like I'm some kind of madman because most of the companies that are on the floor down there are exploration or development stage companies. We took a very different approach to our industry when we set the company up in 2007. We are a vertically integrated company with resource assets upstream, a processing partnership with the largest beryllium processor in the world, and then we have our four manufacturers divisions all located in the eastern United States and the way that we are generating revenue is by selling finished product primarily copper beryllium alloys and aluminum beryllium alloys to a whole range of customers our largest customers are in the aerospace automotive oil and gas and industrial components sectors and they buy our alloys for their very very strong performance characteristics and in the aluminum beryllium alloys in particular for the fact that they are virtually the lightest alloys on the market so for certain aerospace space applications, there really are no substitutes for what we have. So is there no recession in the aerospace or defense sector? Uh, we're in sort of a recession now. We've been in it for a few years and again, you're generating revenue and you have clients that are purchasing your product. Yes, we are. Well, there is a global climate of uncertainty. So our customers, you know, two or three years ago may have been placing purchase orders with more abandon, if you will. Today they are placing those same purchase orders. However, they are being much more cost conscious. They're being much more careful about what they build up in inventory. But if you look at the cycle for the building of an airplane, for example, we are the exclusive provider of a copper alloy to Boeing for use on the Boeing Dreamliner 777 series. That has been a very, very long program that has been around for some years and it'll go through ups and downs of economic uncertainty back to times of economic confidence and Boeing will continue to build those jets. I believe that recently I think it was Emirates but it was a very very large order that some airline put in. I think it was for 35 Dreamliners representing some 15 billion dollars in revenues to Boeing which is music to our ears of course because that means they're going to need much more of our alloy and as I said earlier we are the only company that manufactures this alloy. We're the only company that supplies Boeing with this particular material. What are you doing at a resource conference then? Well, we have a resource division of our company. We have three divisions to the company, Alice. We have a manufacturing division. We have an R&D division, which is all about looking at new ways of using Brillium and other applications and other markets and other opportunities. And then we have, of course, our resource division. And the whole thrust of the company is to increase the demand for our upstream resource. So we wanted to make sure that we had a resource because obviously if we increase the demand for it by doing R&D and developing new markets, we don't want to do that for somebody else's benefit. We want to do it for our benefit. And so by owning these properties and developing these properties and exploring these properties and defining a resource on these properties, we will ultimately be doing all of this downstream work, i.e. increasing the manufacturing base and exploring through R&D initiatives new opportunities. We will be doing that for our own upstream resource base.
Right now it seems since you're vertically integrated that you're your own client for the offtake. Will that ever expand outside of your company? Will you offer beryllium to wholesale buyers in Japan or China or anywhere else in the world? We may well do. Right now our main focus is, as, as you said, being our own client, if you will. You know, being vertically integrated is key, key, key to the rare metals and rare earths. And I don't think that a lot of people really understood that a few years ago. And we've now seen what's happened over the last 18 months that there's been a big drop in the value of some of the these rare earths and rare metals stories because they haven't fully understood the whole downstream vertically integrated nature of the industry. But if you look beyond the rest of the sector and look at us specifically, you will see that unlike nearly every other rare metal company and every other rare earth company downstairs, we are the only one that is generating revenue. We are the only one with a vertically integrated approach. And I think that we're the only one that's going to be able to create some good long-term shareholder value. Uh, Many of your listeners may have heard of Jack Lifton. Jack Lifton wrote an article which was published about, I think, 10 days or so ago. And in that article, he said that 85% of rare metal and rare earth companies will fail. And they will fail for one reason and one reason only. And that's because they do not have a vertically integrated approach and they do not have a manufacturing base. So using that as a measure, if you will, given that we do have revenues and that we do have a manufacturing base, I'd like to think that we're going to be one of the 15% that are going to succeed and succeed very, very nicely. Well, you know, having said that, I would think that most of those companies, if not all of them, are not in production. The resource is not coming out of the ground. As you said, they're not generating revenue. They're getting finance and talking about possible production two to four to five years out, that's not IBC. Well, no, that's not IBC at all. And when they do have production two to five years out, odds are they will simply be selling a concentrate or a ore to a refiner or perhaps a Chinese manufacturing company who will be able to capture the margin further downstream. And as I said, if you look at copper companies, you know, uranium companies, iron ore, gold, you know, all of the typical metals that we all are familiar with, effectively you can produce what you mine. You can produce what you smelt. Whereas in the rare earths and rare metals industry, that's not true. You need to have a vertically integrated approach so that you can control each step of the value chain. And if you don't control each step of the value chain, you're in effect giving the value away to somebody who has the key component. In the case of rare earths and rare metals, it's usually the processing and the manufacturing segments of the value chain that have the ultimate power because they're the ones that have the relationship with the end users, the customers. A lot of these companies are pure speculation and they've got share prices too four, five, ten dollars. Some of them have twenty dollars and yet commodities aren't being brought to market. You have a 15 cent stock. I don't get it. Well, I don't get it either except for the fact that I think that we're being kind of lumped in with a lot of other companies and it still astonishes me that even some of our existing shareholders aren't aware of the fact that we're generating north of 20 million dollars a year in revenues and I think that once people begin to really understand who we are, understand the differences between IBC and some of the other companies they may be familiar with, they're going to see that we are that stock that is worth buying and putting away and holding for a long, long time. There's been a big, big drop in the market over the last eight weeks. We're in the tax loss selling season. We're towards the end of the year. Jim Dines just gave his keynote speech at the Hard Asset Show like 45 minutes ago, and he said that he predicts a strong rally after the beginning of January, and I think we're going to be very much a part of that rally. I think he qualified it by saying that people are going to be much more selective now as to what companies they buy. They're not simply going to be buying the sector. You know, two years ago, you could have hung out a shingle saying you're a rare earth company and your stock would have gone up to a 300%. Today, that's not true. You have to actually have some substance. You have to have a business plan. You have 
have to have a revenue model. And ultimately, what's going to happen here is that the cream will rise to the top. And I think that IBC is very much uh, a part of that cream. The website is ibcadvancedalloys.com. You'll be able to share this podcast with your friends on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. You can hear it on our Voice America international outlet. You can also, of course, catch us from week to week on this particular radio station that you're tuning in with us right now. IBC Advanced Alloys trades on the Canadian Venture Exchange on the symbol IBC, and it's important in the U.S. Jot this down if you haven't done so already. They trade on the OTCQX. Just type in the symbol IAALF. That's IAALF. Anthony Dutton, president of IBC Advanced Alloys. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program. Thank you very much, Ellis. IBC Advanced Alloys trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol IB.V and in the U.S. as IAALF. That's IAALF. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.